Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 117 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where if boys whine loud enough, they get whatever they want, except here. (laughs) They don't get anything here. (sighs) (laughs) All right. I don't. I don't hate all men. Um, <laughs> I actually. By the way, I'm Karen Peterson, joined by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. <laughs> this week I was really mad, and I texted. I have a couple of friends. They're married to each other, and um, I texted them. We we're in a group group text, and I was just like. Dustin, thank you for not being a man. Just like I'm <laughs> usually not a Karen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there are definitely certain men that you're just like, I fucking hate men. And they're like, oh, I was like, well, not you. You don't count as a man. <laughs> exactly. Well, and then I was just like, in the immortal words of Glynis Johns, <laughs> we adore men individually. We agree that as a group, they're rather stupid. So... For those of you who were about to be offended by what I just said, because we do know that we have a lot of men listening, um, most of you are not included in that group. I'm not going to say which ones of you are. (laughs) But anyway, let's move on before I get myself in trouble. Uh, Of course, the reason for my frustration today is that they gave the mouse a cookie, you guys. And that's just, you know, can't do that. You just can't, because when you give them a cookie, they want the whole jar. So what happened, of course, most people know this week. um, Hey, we're doing some film news. We haven't done that in a while. I know. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, this week they announced that HBO Max in 2020 will be releasing the Snyder Cut. To which Zack Snyder, and it's been, I don't think he has officially confirmed it's him, but people that know him have said, yes, it was definitely him, flew a pl- well, he didn't personally fly, but paid to have a fly uh, flyover around Warner Brothers Studios with a big banner saying, thank you, Warner Brothers. Because, of course, as we know, for the last two years since Justice League came out, it sucked, and the fans got mad because they thought Joss Whedon ruined it. And never mind the fact that he still didn't do enough of the movie to actually get directing credit on it. <laughs> but uh, whatever, he somehow ruined it. He ruined a movie that was obviously going to be perfect and wonderful. And So for the last two years or so, these fans have been whining and complaining and crying and begging release the Snyder Cut. They've been harassing people sending death threats over a movie because they have no lives and it's been really bad. And so HBO max Warner brothers giving into this, it just is a huge slap in the face to everyone who's had to suffer from the abuses online from 
these people. And uh, I was really pissed about it because I remembered <laughs> writing the story um, three years ago. And I just pulled it up. It was actually three years ago yesterday that um, Zack Snyder announced that he was stepping away from Justice League. He was stepping away because what had happened was in March, his daughter died. Uh, she took her own life. It was very tragic. And he took some time off, tried to go back to finishing the film, and just realized he couldn't do it. What he needed to process and what he was dealing with was much bigger than a few weeks away. Warner Brothers offered to, re to change the release date. They offered to push it back, give him as much time as he needed, and he said no. He just needed to just walk away from it. And so then they hired Joss Whedon to come in. And so it's always bothered me when they're like, release the Snyder Cut. I'm like, he had the chance to finish the movie. And I understand the fans don't like it because it sucks. Um, but part of my problem in all of this is how Zack Snyder has acted like he was somehow a victim in all of this too. When he was the one who made that choice. And what he was dealing with was terrible and tragic and I get that. But... He made the choice to walk away, and then he egged on all these people. And it's so disgusting, and it just makes me think, like, yeah, he really is every bit one of these fanboys that is obnoxious and terrible. And now the studio has just let all those guys win, and immediately what they did, they were so happy and so ready to celebrate winning, they immediately went and harassed Joss Whedon. And Gail Simone and all these other people who've been saying, guys, the Snyder Cut doesn't exist. Leave it alone. Well, we know the Snyder Cut still doesn't exist because Warner is offering $30 million, like giving him a budget of $30 million to go and finish it. But they're like, they're so happy and taking the win so well and so wonderfully that they're going and still harassing people. And now they have lists of other things they want to demand because this is just how things are now because... Once again, if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> so, anyway, Lauren, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that you expressed it pretty well. It's it's stupid. This conversation has been stupid for the past, what, three years? Justice League came out in 2017? Yeah. I, I it did was November of 2017, yeah. I mean, with, with some of these guys, I do want to feel like, do you not have a life? Do you not have anything better to do than this? Because to, then to harass people over a bad movie. I mean, what sort of a fucking loser are you to yeah. be so upset about a fucking blockbuster movie that you just didn't like because it sucked... And to spend three years harassing people over it. Three fucking years. There's so much that you could have done in those three years. But no, you like fucking morons. I just can't. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's exhausting. And I mean, I think that it does sort of prove, as you said, the, the fact that they're saying, oh, we're going to give them $30 million to do this. Just like, so it doesn't exist. There is no secret cut that Zack Snyder made and that the studio suppressed and there is no secret conspiracy. Uh, they're, they're this, they basically saw, I mean, it, you know, one angle to look at this is, is to say that they see a cash cow. They're like, Oh, we'll get Zack Snyder to do this. We'll get him to do it for $30 million. We'll make a lot more than that. 
uh, in releasing it. And, and ultimately, you know, I mean, they, for, for fuck's sake, they've been talking about the fact that fans are like destroying their current copies of Justice League. And that one gets me going. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, you bought, <laughs> you bought a movie that you didn't like, first of all. Okay, so you actually purchased, you spent your money, or probably your parents' money, because I doubt that some of you have, like, the actual money to do this. Uh, you spent money on a fucking Blu-ray or digital copy or a DVD or whatever it is that you assholes are doing, and then three years later you destroy that copy, which then you are going to pay more money to go watch the new, the quote, new version of this movie <laughs> that we don't even know if it's going to be ever released on physical media. So it might just like live on HBO forever. So you're going to pay for the same fucking movie two times. And one time you were so goddamn stupid that you destroyed the thing that you paid for. <laughs> Oh, Lauren, you give them so much credit. You know most of them are not going to sign up for HBO Max to pay for this movie. They're going to BitTorrent it and watch it for free. <laughs> and HBO and Warner Brothers are going to be like, oh, we didn't make any money off of it. No shit, you <laughs> assholes! <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is stupid. We've talked about it before. It does. It's, it is pandering to the lowest common denominator fandom. And I, I do have to say, I'm certain that there are some people who really think and, and really want this, like, they, they wish that Snyder had been able to finish the film. And that's totally understandable. I understand wishing that he had been able to finish the film the first time around. Like, I get that. I, I'm not a big fan of Zack Snyder. I understand that some people are. I don't know why they are, but fine, whatever. <laughs> But this whole conspiracy theory, this whole idea that like the cut has been suppressed and that, and this has been so fueled by Warner Brothers, it has been fueled by Snyder, it's been fueled by, the, uh, it's been fueled by a number of the stars of the film, which I find really disappointing. And it's just like, guys, you have to have something better to do than this. You, you have to. Like, why? Yeah. Why? What is the result going to be? And the thing is, the movie is still going to suck. And the reason why the movie is still going to suck is because Zack Snyder is a bad director. Period. Yep. Like, mm -hmm. sorry, everybody. Zack Snyder is a bad director. And that means that the Snyder cut, when you finally get to see it, when it's like four fucking hours long or whatever is going to suck and you're and you're either going to be like oh no it's totally cool even though you know that it sucks because you dedicated so much of your sad little lives to this or you're going to be mad again and be like well this wasn't actually made by Zack Snyder it's like fuck you like seriously mm -hmm. go go crawl into a hole <laughs> yeah exactly well and i've been saying like so much of the problem with justice league besides the fact that it's really badly directed badly lit like so many actual technical production issues with it. But one of the biggest problems is that Warner and Zack Snyder and his wife Deborah, who served as the executive producers, they were basically supposed to be kind of the Kevin Feig of the Justice League universe or the DC universe. Um, the Part of the problem was that they just rushed to get to Justice League. They had done a Superman movie. They did Batman versus Superman and then they threw in Wonder Woman. They hurried to make sure that that came out before Justice League. But then when Justice League comes out, you still haven't introduced half of your heroes or your villain. Whereas with um, with the Marvel Universe, 
they had introduced all four, technically all six of the original Avengers, because even though they didn't get original films, you'd already met Hawkeye and Black Widow too. And they had already introduced the villains. So when the Avengers come along, you don't have to spend a lot of time figuring out who people are and, and understanding the bad guy's motivation because they've already explained that. They've taken three years to explain it. Four years, and Justice League just was like, no, we want to catch up instead of taking the time to do it right. So that's that's and remaking the movie is not going to fix that problem. Yeah, it's it's I, I I don't even know. There's there's not much else to say because I care so little about Justice League <laughs> that and I, yeah, I I have such difficulty. It's DC is really weird because there are a lot of individual films in Mm -hmm. the DC universe that I really like. I like Wonder Woman. I liked Aquaman. I liked Birds of Prey. Uh, You know, I think that so far in this particular iteration, the Batman movies are terrible. Um, The Superman movie, the Superman movies are God awful. Uh, You know, Justice League sucks, but it's, it's, it's a very weird thing. And I really wish that, that DC kind of doubled down maybe on the weirdness of some of their films and stop worrying about this whole world building thing because none of it makes sense anymore. Um, they're yeah. not Marvel and they failed at being Marvel because they haven't actually taken the time to develop it. Like you're saying, uh, and that's okay. You know what? It's okay to have standalone films. It's okay to have like each individual character or whatever, having their own series and that being it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And they're obviously making money doing it. Wonder Woman was very popular. Um, Aquaman was very popular. Like, there's there's nothing wrong with those films. It's and Birds of Prey is going to be this year's best picture winner. So I and, mean, yeah, and I mean, Birds of Prey, Birds of Prey is fantastic. And uh, and so so far, the DC films have always been the ones that they've kind of allowed to go outside of sort of the universe building and just been good, fun standalone films that have worked really well. So I. I don't know. They're forcing it. And now we've got the toxic fanboys again. And, you know, they were never going to go away, but it, it is really depressing when you see them being pandered to. And they, and by the way, sad white men, this is pandering. This is what pandering actually looks like. You are being pandered to your fragile little egos are being pandered to. Um, that is very different from making movies with POC or, uh, uh, women in the lead roles. So just so that you recognize what pandering actually is. Fuckwits. Exactly. <laughs> oh, but there was good news this week. Yesterday, FX announced that What We Do in the Shadows is getting a season three. Woohoo! Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, I saw it coming, but I figured it would happen because the season's been so great. Um, I've heard buzzing that they were trying to lock people in but um to have it be official and they went ahead and announced it now it's like oh good yes this is awesome this is great news in a week where the news about what's gonna happen in the next year with tv is getting kind of bleak there was um there was a like a zoom teleconference call thing whatever i don't know i'm throwing a lot of (laughs) half words together but um there was a meeting this week with some folks from TV and film meeting with the governor of California because 
there's a lot of concern about reopening the film industry here and and there are so many people out of work right now and um and there's a lot of concern because normally right now this i mean we're at the tail end of um pilot season where everybody's making their pilots for the fall a lot of shows, writers, like shows that would be normally premiering in September, their writers' rooms are going and they're about to start production in June. But a lot of those writers' rooms aren't working because even though they can work from home, it's much different mm. to try to collaborate on writing projects over a computer than it is to sit in an actual room and write together. Um, and so a lot of things are looking like they're going to be delayed. And uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how many Disney sing-alongs we end up with in the fall on TV. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, the news that What We Do in the Shadows is definitely uh, officially coming back for season three was really exciting news. And, um, yeah. How did yeah. you feel about it, Lauren? I'm very happy about it, obviously. I've been rewatching uh, What We Do in the Shadows because my, my roommate hadn't seen it, and so we've been rewatching the whole show and just reliving some of the good times, like the <laughs> vampire orgy and Baron's <laughs> Night Out and, you know. Some oh my gosh, my... Baron's Night Out is one of my favorite ones. That, honestly, that was when the show totally clicked for me. Like, before that, I was like, oh, I'm enjoying this. This is fun. I'm willing to go along with it. And then that was the point at which I was like, I love it. This is this is it. This is for me. Uh, it, it just, I don't know, when the vampires get drunk and they do drugs, it's just like, I drank some drug blood and now I am on drugs and now I'm a wizard. <laughs> He's wearing a traffic cone on his head. Yeah, just the whole thing. Like, and Nasha being like, we, 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 drank, we drank the drug the drug blood. Drug blood. <laughs> that whole, like, all of it. It's just really, really funny and so well done. Have you guys... Have you guys gotten to episode eight yet? The vampire trial. Uh, yeah, no, we've we're, we've actually watched the entirety of what's oh, okay. available so far. So yeah, we got to the and and again, my roommate was really excited because he didn't know about like the vampires who were being brought on. He's like, oh my god, is that Taka? I was like, yes. Uh-huh. You can't yes, tell people. Like, it has to be a surprise that makes it a million times better. It's him, and that's Tilda Swinton. It's like, yeah. <laughs> So, and Wesley Snipes with the bad Snipe connect or Skype connection. Yeah, like all, all of it. It's a lot of fun, and it's and honestly, I I like the fact that it's fun to watch a second time because um, mm-hmm. there were all kinds of jokes that I had missed and like one-liners that just sort of fly by. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, and things that even just stand out more now because you know the characters yeah. better, and now you know like, oh, that actually is really funny because that references something that happens later. And- yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant show. It is a so brilliant, brilliant show. It's very funny and and very and it's good. It's good world building also. Like there's, you get so like the, as you learn more about the characters and about their backgrounds and and everything. I mean, Colin Robinson remains <laughs> an enigma that I don't know if we want to know more about him. I kind of do, but I kind of don't. I'm like I don't know how deep into the world of Colin Robinson I really want to go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious, but I'm also like part of the fun of him is the mystery. Well, I really like it. I think it's in an episode this season where where they're like, "What? 
what are you? He's like, I, I honestly don't know what my deal is either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the ghosts episode. Yeah. Where he Just ends like, up talking to his grandma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, man. So funny. Um, um, well, what I thought was really surprising when I got the announcement was... Um, the viewership this season is up 25% from season one. So I think a lot of people are doing what you've been doing where they have been watching it and they're sharing it with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, other folks, now that they're stuck at home, they're having time to catch up with things. They're like, oh, I'll watch this show. And then they're finding out it's really damn funny. And it's like the perfect, it's the perfect thing to watch in quarantine when you just really need something just funny and warm and inviting. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that it, in some ways, you know, I don't want to say that any show got lucky with the pandemic, but this they kind of got lucky in the sense that the new season started sort of right at the mm-hmm. beginning uh, of yeah. quarantine when a lot of people were kind of were basically locking themselves inside and everything. And so suddenly the, it was like, okay, what are the shows that are still going, right? Because a bunch of shows only had a couple of episodes before the end of their season. And then this show was just starting. And mm-hmm. that, and so they kind of hit the sweet spot at that level that suddenly people are like, oh, there's a new show that I haven't seen. And, you know, and it doesn't take very long to catch up because the first season is, is what, only 10 episodes. It's 10 episodes and they're 20 minutes each because it's for TV. Yeah. And so it doesn't take very long to get through. And so you could catch up to, to this point really quickly. Um, and it's something new, you know, something new to watch. And, and, it, and it's funny. It's just funny. <laughs> It is. Uh, I think I'm going to just watch season one again today. I've watched it like four times. <laughs> um, anyway, all right. So um, other stuff. So now we talked about what's current. Let's go back in time. And this week we wanted to talk about the um, the world of film before the production code was introduced and kind of how the code changed changed the industry kind of really built the industry in a way but um so i wanted to start off with just a kind of a quick summary i'm getting this from bfi's screen online uh, page and i will definitely link this in the show notes but uh it's a really good uh, breakdown of what the code is which was also referred to as the hayes code it was introduced in march 1930 Uh, It was called the Hayes Code after Will Hayes, who was the president of the Motion Picture Association at the time. Um, And it basically uh, decided, they they decided that movies were getting indecent and they needed to do something about it. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. So the, um, this is a quote from the site. The code was founded according to the concept, quote, if motion pictures present stories that will affect lives for the better, they can become the most powerful force for the improvement of mankind. So with that in mind, there were three general principles that, uh, that were part of the code. So basically my favorite is the first part. No picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it. <laughs> so, yeah. So basically the the idea of it is that you can't, it can't bring you to a place where you're sympathizing with people who are bad and mm-hmm. people who are doing terrible things and like criminals and stuff. 
Um, it has to present correct, correct standards of life <laughs> and uh, law, natural and human law. Either one should not be ridiculed. So that's, that gets into things like um, criminal activities, sex, violence, obscenity, um, all that kind of stuff. So Lauren, uh, where should we start with this conversation? Well, I, I just wanted to say that I always find the production code really interesting. And I, I think that people kind of misunderstand what it is and what it did. Um, there's always been some kind of censorship in film. Uh, and, and, and here we're specifically talking about American film, right? So we're talking about Hollywood. Yes. Uh, we're talking about films being made by and distributed by the major studios. Uh, so this is, this is kind of, as we talked about last week, we're moving out of the early film and the, and even the early silent film period. And we're moving into sort of this more codified, um, structure, right. Of, of Mm -hmm. Hollywood filmmaking. And, but there's always been some kind of censorship in that is kind of a part of that. And then for a long time, it was state censorship. So different, there, there were actually state boards in each state that sort of decreed what films could be shown and what films couldn't. And, the production code, the the initial goal of it, and it, it, it was started um, by uh, it's it, it was started by initially by uh, Will Hayes, and and it was actually quite early. Some of the earliest elements of what eventually became the production code were proposed in the 1920s, right? And they were mm-hmm. things like exactly what you were talking about. Um, uh, like, you know, profanity, nudity, illegal drug trafficking. And then, and, and some of those are kind of like, okay, well, that's, that's very similar to, to sort of the, the rating system today, the MPAA and all of that. So what things um, get you a PG rating, what things get you a PG-13 rating, what things get you an R rating. And then you begin to go into some of the others, and that's, that's where the morality clauses begin coming in. Um, so, you know, not... You're not allowed to badly to to um, represent members of the clergy in a bad light, right? It's like, oh, well, that's interesting, and, and you begin to understand why they were doing this when you realize that a lot of the push for a, a broad-based censorship was coming out of both Protestant and uh, and Catholic um, dioceses saying, you know, you are sh- you are exhibiting things to our uh, our people that we don't approve of. Right. So you're not allowed. You shouldn't be allowed to show the clergy in a good in a bad light. You shouldn't be allowed to show abortion in a good light. Um, the and some of the other things that they they wouldn't allow is is what then was referred to as miscegenation and is not a correct term anymore, um, but is essentially inter, interracial marriage or interracial relationships. Uh, so then you begin to get into the racism of these things. But the, the fact that Hayes and then the, the guy who eventually was the head of the, um, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it was called, uh, who's the head of the, the MPAA. Mo- yeah, the Motion Picture Association of America, uh, Breen, Joseph Breen, um, their whole thing was uh, this kind of broad-based nothing that is immoral. Okay, well, what is what is immoral? Well, they were classifying certain things as immoral as, like, you know, women being independent, uh, depicting flappers, 
uh, depicting out too much alcoholic consumption, depicting prostitution, you know, so this, there's this broad base level of what was morality and what should be allowed to be depicted on screen. Um, what I find really interesting about the pre-code era is that, particularly from a contemporary standpoint, is that we we are so we're so used to seeing code films, right? Films that were made post code, and some of that I think honestly is because we've kind of valorized a certain area era of Hollywood filmmaking, and we've said so stuff like Casablanca, which is a great, and I'm not saying that these aren't great films, but this is like where we begin to valorize them. Things like Casablanca or Gone with the Wind or uh, slightly later you begin to get into the um, the MGM musicals of the 1950s, uh, Best Years of Our Lives, you know, all those kinds of films. We we look at them and we go like, oh, okay, so, so this is what Hollywood filmmaking looked like. And although there there's always things that kind of slip through the cracks, these are all films that are being made under the production code and they're films that therefore cannot depict certain things or... They can depict certain things, but only in a particular way. So the, the famous one is, you know, murderers must always be punished. You can't have a good character committing murder and then not being punished for it at the end of the film. Hence, you get some really weird arrangement. Um, but what I find really interesting about the pre-code is that you begin to look at those films and they look like, you know... Casablanca or Gone with the Wind or whatever and suddenly you're like they're talking about abortion they're dealing with nudity they're dealing with you know uh, relationships outside of marriage they're dealing with sexual relationships they're dealing with homosexuality sometimes they're dealing with abortion and you know and it's not saying that these were completely progressive films in fact many of them weren't but there was a lot more that was going into it and some really interesting films were made during this very short period between pre-code Hollywood is usually uh, post-silent film, so it's it's early talkies, right? It's when most films, not all, but most films were being made with some kind of a sound component. Um, so from about 1929 to about mid-1934, which is when um, the production code really came into effect. And, and again, we have to remember, production code is a form of Hollywood self-censorship. This wasn't something that was imposed by a state or by the federal government or anything like that. This was a choice that Hollywood made, um, partially in agreement with religious communities, of saying, like, okay, we're going to censor our own films and we're going to establish what films can and cannot show uh, and how they can and cannot show them in our own censorship boards so that we're not having to deal with, you know, uh, Catholic diocese saying, uh, fathers from Catholic diocese saying, we don't want our community to go see these films. So that's yeah. my little rundown. <laughs> no, yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. And, and yeah, like you said, it was very optional. This was not something that studios were required by law to do. But it also was just kind of, at the time, what they thought they had to do to make sure not to lose audiences and, and things as they were starting to make money uh, by releasing movies and people were paying to go see them. They didn't. Yeah, whenever you get money involved, you get all kinds of weird decisions being made. Um, but uh, but it's funny because the... And we'll talk more specifically about what films were like during the code era. Um, probably next week or, or so. Or probably over the next few weeks. But um, but it's just funny because so many of the ideas that we have of, of what our grandparents were like and our great-grandparents is because of the films that we've seen from 
the production code days. And so we think that there's this very puritanical lifestyle being lived by people in the 40s and 50s and 60s, but it's really just because the reality of, of what people lived and what they knew of the world and how they interacted with each other was very, very watered down and, and censored, like you say. So um, you wanted to talk about <laughs> our Randy, Randy grandparents. <laughs> Uh, well, like I say, I think that it's it's interesting what what precode films uh, actually depict, and uh, and some of the things that you know you don't necessarily expect. So I'm I'm going to start with one of my personal favorite genres, um, horror films, and we have to remember that some of the original Universal monsters uh, that we know and love and that are like major icons were made during the precode era. So Dracula was made in 1931. Frankenstein was made in 1931. Um, the, the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, starring Friedrich March. Um, there were also some others that I think should be, should be watched, honestly, simply, simply for, you know, if you kind of think, oh, you know, these, these are like puritanical films. These are, these kinds of films are boring. It's like, no, you want to see like murders (laughs) at the zoo, which is not a great film in itself, but the opening sequence literally involves the villain sewing a man's mouth shut. Oh, man. And you see it in detail. And this, it's honestly, like, if anyone, go and search on YouTube, like, just the opening, this is the opening of the film. This isn't even, <laughs> like, you know, the the big climax. This is the fucking opening of the film. And you have the villain kneeling on top of this man and sewing his mouth shut. And then he, the man turns to the camera and you see this, right? It is shocking. It is shocking. And it is particularly shocking because this is like 1932, right? These, you're, you're looking at going like, holy shit, what is happening? <laughs> wow. And so these representations of, of sadism and masochism and violence, um, in, in horror films, and then also we have to talk about the fact that, uh, that the gangster film was a major, uh, was one of the major sort of beginnings of, of classic Hollywood and, uh, and was a major pre-code genre. And some have argued that one of the reasons why the code became, you know, people began to go like, oh, we actually kind of need this is because of some of the gangster films that were being made. So films like Little Caesar, um, starring Edward G. Robinson or The Public Enemy, where you you get like excessive violence. Sometimes it's violence that is, is sometimes very, very shocking even now. Um, in, I watched the original Scarface last night and I was just like, man, they're just like shooting up everyone. They're blowing buildings up. Like, yeah, I mean, it's really violent. Yes. And Scarface is uh, very often labeled as being one of the first pre-code as one of the major pre-code films that kind of instigated the mm-hmm. uh, the eventual you know use of the code as kind of the broad based censorship for Hollywood because it was considered to be so violent and and it actually is shockingly violent for for the time period like you you sit mm-hmm. down and watch it and you're like you don't I, I think that part of it is that there is this um, this disconnect between what we think these films are sh- are supposed to be like and what they actually are and yeah. so you don't always see like I. I I mean, I'm not trying to say this is, you know, Martin Scorsese level of violence, so, you know, Goodfellas level of violence. It's right? not bloody, but it's that level of, like, people being shot and murdered on screen. That's yeah. the thing. 
So. Um, I we were talking last week about um, Frances Marion and uh, and her films and the films that she wrote. And one of the big ones that you mentioned was The Big House. Have you gotten a chance to actually see The I Big House? I did. Yet? Yeah. Okay. I so it this week. The end. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. The end of The Big House involves this major prison riot and shootout mm-hmm. that includes tanks. <laughs> yeah. And it's incredibly violent. Like, again, shockingly so. You're sitting there going, like, oh my god, they're just, like, killing people. They're just, like, machine gunning people. (laughs) And that's a movie where there's a criminal who becomes, well, pretty much most of the criminals in that are either obviously really bad or they're the ones that you're supposed to be sympathizing with. They're the guys that are in prison. And... This is all stuff that totally would have been censored if that movie had come out five years later. That movie wouldn't have been made five years later. No. And yet, when it came out in 1930, it was nominated for Best Picture. Frances Marion wins her first Oscar for writing it. And, yeah. And it's just crazy to think that just a couple years later, it wouldn't have gotten made at all. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that's one of the qualities of pre-code films that we have to we have to look at. The fact that it does, they do depict moral grayness. So this idea that, that a criminal can reform themselves, and they can still have done terrible things, right? But you still mm-hmm. might feel sympathy for them. You still feel like they don't deserve what happens to them. You can still feel, and you can also feel that some of the, quote, good characters, the characters that are morally upright, are also maybe not so good. They're not always, um, they don't always do things, and they don't always behave in ways that, we as the viewer would approve of, but also the film doesn't necessarily approve of them. Um, So you can have these very complicated moral dialogues that are going on, and the film does not necessarily have to come down on one side or another. Pre-Code Hollywood allows for a a larger scope of morality and a larger scope of of redemption, um, and of what that actually means, that someone can accept the fact that they they have done bad things but that that does not make them necessarily a bad person or that they can change the the trajectory of their of their lives and i i always think that that's you know so this this whole issue about like you know, a murderer must be punished um i always think that that's very sad to see in post postcode hollywood because you begin to see you see the kind of cracks as it were you see where you're like well the nature of the story really is that this guy needs that this guy is going to be redeemed at the end but he can't be because he killed someone and he did it deliberately you know there isn't any sort of like well actually it was a total accident and i didn't kill him um so you, yeah. you don't get that kind of moral grayness. You don't get the the chance for these characters to change and to develop. So violence simply becomes, you know, bad guys commit violence, good guys don't. And it's like, well, that's not true, is it? Uh, exactly. And I do think that, that one of the issues with the code is that it really has carried through into contemporary Hollywood. And we still have this attitude just like, this is what good guys do. This is what bad guys do. We don't allow for that complexity in filmmaking. Um, and so we still have this inherent resistance to it when we're, we actually want to talk about, you know, is this a good character or a bad character? Well, he's not really either. You know, there are good things that he's done and there are bad things that he's done. And it's a question of, you know, does it, can he be redeemed? Or if he can't be redeemed, can we still love him despite his lack of redemption? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good point that we still look at films this way today. Um, and but yeah, I think it, it's interesting when you go back and look at these old movies. One of the reasons that people say they don't like to watch old movies is because they're too sanitized and it's like well <laughs> go back a little bit farther and you will see a much different view of the world and of Hollywood and much different storytelling and it's interesting I mean this is kind of a conversation that we were having earlier this week because I watched The Big House and then I went and watched The Wind right after mm-hmm. with Lillian Gish and uh and I was just like so first of all, you got the big house where they're talking about injustices in the prison system and the need for prison reform. That's 1930. And then I backed up two years to The Wind, which is a silent film where Lillian Gish is this woman who moves from Virginia to stay with her cousin in Texas. And it's very, uh, very harsh conditions from what she's used to. And she's just kind of slowly going crazy because it's windy all the freaking time but also because men just won't leave her the fuck alone (laughs) and um, so she's like because she's the new cute girl and she's single all the men that are available and looking for a wife they're like oh here's a girl and they all start fighting over her and it's this weird very odd um I mean, I really liked the movie, but just, like, the men just making me so angry. And I was just like, quit telling me people have changed. People do not change. We're dealing with this stuff now. <laughs> this this movie is now. <laughs> well, I think that it's a good point. Also, the way that female characters generally are treated. And if you look at Precode Hollywood, and a lot of Precode Hollywood also bears, uh, you know, it, its relationships with obviously silent films. You're talking about um, Lillian Gish, mm-hmm. uh, who is a major star in that period. Um, Mary Pickford, who is later a major star. Uh, another one's Miriam Hopkins. Um, and then slightly later, you get people like Jean Harlow and Mae West. Yeah. Uh, and but the representations of women get really interesting in this in this period and and gender relationships and what is and again what is acceptable and what isn't and, and there's there's a greater degree of nuance there's actually discussion of abortion and prostitution and um, one of my like one of the films that I, I recently watched was Anna Christie which is based on a, a Eugene O'Neill play but it stars Greta Garbo. And there is a sequence, and basically Anna, Anna Christie is this, this, this girl whose father is a dog, he's, he's, a, um, he's the captain of a barge, and he sends her away to a farmhouse, to a farm in, like, Minneapolis, I think. <laughs> he sends her from New York to Minneapolis, uh, and, um, and, and so he, sent, he sends her away, and she... She falls, right? But what we actually find out about her is that she was not safe at this farm. She was raped by one of the farmhands. So she escapes and she goes to St. Paul, where being a very young girl, she's like 16 years old, she can't get a job. So she becomes a prostitute. Uh, and then eventually she works her way back to New York to see her father. She see, she meets a man. She falls in love with this. There's this whole thing about men imposing their views of what she is on her. She, and and both her father and the man the man that she eventually falls in love with are 
constantly saying like, oh, you're so good. You're so pure. You know, I didn't know that there were pure women like you. And of course she's sitting there going like, I'm, I was a prostitute, you know, and she, and she doesn't tell them this. And then finally there is a scene where she loses it. She's basically like, and she essentially says in much more flower language, but she essentially says, sit the fuck down and shut the fuck up. And let me tell you what this pure woman is and what I have gone through. And so she tells them the entire story of being raped, of becoming a prostitute, of becoming all these things. And she essentially accuses them of not caring about her and not, and, and not understanding that it was, that it's men that did this to her, that this is not her fault. And she says very explicitly, I do not want to be this, but this is what I am. And it's because of men. It's because of what men like you did to women like me. And she's pissed off about it. Um, but it's, it's really powerful. But so you're talking about, uh, you know, very specifically, um, it's very specific to the time period, right? But at the same time, it's like actually saying like, you know what? No, this, this isn't my fault. It's not my fault that I'm a prostitute. It's not my fault that this is something that happened to me. It's not my fault that I was raped. It's, it's your fault. It's your fault for sending me away. It's your fault for making me into something that I'm not and for requiring me to be something that I'm not. I, this is who I am. It's not that I want to be like this, but this is who I am. And you have to deal with that now. Um, and it's, it's, so it's a really fascinating film, but you get that in, in pre-code Hollywood a lot more. You get these women who are not, you know, who are complicated, who are having difficulty, who can yell at men, who can say like, you're wrong. You're wrong for treating me like this. You're wrong for, for believing that I should be something that I'm not. And, and you don't see that as much. As soon as the production code really takes effect, and you begin to see, you said a little bit in the early 30s and the mid 30s, but it, it quickly filters out because it becomes, again, you get into this moral black and whiteness, prostitute, bad, fallen woman, right? You might be able to, to, to redeem her at the end, but she's probably gonna die. Um, right. You know, good girl, pure girl, good. And so you always wind up with that sort of black and white dichotomy. Yeah, well, and, and from what we talked about last week, it makes a lot of sense why there was this, why there was a lot more freedom for the way women were depicted before the code, because women were writing stories, women were making these movies, they were producing. We talked a lot about Frances Marion and Mary Pickford and Lois Weber and Alice Gee and these women who were the ones that were making the decisions on what movies were getting made and actually writing them and making them. And they got to tell their stories. And once the, once the studios start to come up and they're being, well, I mean, there were women running studios, but once they got kind of pushed out by the, by the bigger ones um, and these studios now are being run by men. MGM gets founded, Universal Pictures and Paramount. These these guys pop up. They're run by men. The people that they're hiring to make the movies are men. And men have this very weird puritanical view of how women think and act and behave. Mm -hmm. And not only how we do, but how we should. And I mean... I know that that's true because of the conversations I have with my friends today. I mean, my last boyfriend and I used to argue all the time about, like, 
well, women don't think that way. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm a woman telling you this is what I think. Don't tell me women don't (laughs) think like that, you know? And don't tell me that's not something that runs through my mind because it runs through my mind, you know? And, And that's the thing. So it's like during code when these movies are being made by men, it's based on their view of how women either do or should behave. And so women's voices are silenced literally and figuratively as a result of that. Yeah. It's this, it's an imposition of a, of a fairly conservative view of morality that, um, that, uh, the the damages everybody and the damages, the damages women, the damages, the representations of women. And, and I think that, you know, I just talked about Anna Christie, but which is, it's a drama, right? It's very serious and everything, but there's, there's the other side of that, which is someone like Mae West, um, who again is sometimes erroneously accused of, of being the reason why the code got instituted, but um, but so Mae West made uh, she was she was a playwright she was uh, an actress she was a singer she was all Mae West is a, just a fabulous figure in film history and in theater history, um, but some of her uh, some of her early films which are made kind of right at the right at the cusp it's right where you're beginning you're transitioning into. Um, the production code, but films like She Done Him Wrong and I'm No Angel, which is a celebration in a lot of ways of female sexuality and female desire. Uh, you know, you've got, and She Done Him Wrong, and actually both of them, uh, you've got a young Cary Grant who's gorgeous, like he's beautiful. And Mae West looks at him and goes like, oh my God, he's gorgeous. <laughs> you know, she wants him. She wants him sexually. And she basically says that that's what she wants. Uh, there's a wonderful sequence in I'm No Angel where she's essentially, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but she's, she winds up being put on trial. (laughs) Uh, and she, and there are all of these men who are like accusing her, right, of stealing from them. And she's essentially like, well, what do you mean? Did you give me, didn't you give me gifts? And they're, they're like, well, yeah, just like, well do you want the gifts back? It's like, no. Well, why did you give me the gifts? And they're all like, and, and she's just like, well, that it doesn't seem like I stole from anybody. You gave me things and I took them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she kind of goes through all of her conquests, her sexual conquests. And she's not only not ashamed of it, she's proud of it. She's saying like, I had a great time. You guys had a great time. What are you complaining about? <laughs> uh, and and it's fascinating to see that, and again, so surprising to see it in this period of film when we don't expect to see that kind of thing. We don't expect to see this representation, this very buxom, passionate female sexuality that does not give a fuck. It's just like, hell yeah, hell yeah, I slept with a lot of men. I slept with him and him and him and him, and he is great. <laughs> <laughs> and what of it? <laughs> yeah, just like, and what do you want me to do? You know, that's just who I am. Uh, mm-hmm. So you do get these, these much more frank expressions of sexuality. Um, uh, another one that I always really like is Trouble in Paradise, which is a, a heist film from 1932. But again, it's, it's about, it's really not about stealing diamonds. It's about pe- who's sleeping with whom and why. And it's fantastic. It's funny. It's, um, it's incredibly sexual. And, it, it represents kind of a freer and happier kind of sexuality that you actually get in some of the more moral films that are made later on. 
because they're able to express these things openly, the, the, this doesn't have to be concealed in fade-outs. This is something that you can actually talk explicitly about and have fun with and say, this is fun. There's nothing wrong with premarital sex. You know, it's, in fact, it's a good time as long as everybody is okay with it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, it comes back to, I know I've said this a lot and I'll probably say it a lot more, but it comes back to like the idea that we used to have and a lot of people still do have about what, what was happening in society. Like, the idea of premarital sex, for example, um, oh, people didn't do that. My grandparents would never. And it's like, oh, that was happening all the time. What are you talking about? It was normal. It's it just because of, of things like censorship and because of what you do and don't talk about in polite society, there's just this idea that that wasn't going on, but it absolutely was. Um, yeah, it's funny how easy it is to rewrite history and, and uh, to kind of shape our view of, of um, the people that came before us. It's very easy mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, definitely. I, I did also just want to mention this issue. So I, we mentioned um, the, the question of, of interracial relationships and the depiction oh, yeah. of, interrelation, of interracial relationships. And, you know, this, this period of film history is not great, not great for race relations. Uh, but there are some interesting things that are being depicted. And again, you know, I, I think that a lot of what we're talking about comes down to nuance. Um, and, and, the, and kind of a complication of some of the things that we are used to seeing in this period of film uh, is, is as sort of these black and white relationships. Um, one of the most interesting ones, I think, is a very complicated film. And, it, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that it's good, but it's fascinating. Uh, and I mentioned it before on this podcast, but The Bitter Tea of General Yen. Mm-hmm. which is a film from, I think it's 19, it's 1932, 1933. Uh, it's a film that stars Barbara Stanwyck and um, Nils Asher. And it's very odd because it actually is, uh, it's about the relationship between a Christian missionary and a, uh, a Chinese warlord. Uh, in, I think, it's either Hong Kong or Shanghai. I can't remember. Uh and and it's odd because it is a romantic relationship and it is kind of the sexual attraction that develops between them of course at the same time nils asher is a is a swedish actor he's not even close to being a chinese person at all uh so he's he's in yellow face right the entire time but it's a it's a very nuanced performance and the relationship is very nuanced as well. So you've got this this romance, essentially. This is a film that's a romance um, between these characters that technically are not supposed to be romantically interested in one another. And it it's very interesting in terms of what it depicts and how it develops. And it's very interesting in terms of uh, in terms of the way that race relationships are depicted and what is considered to be acceptable and what isn't. Because on the one hand, as, as a contemporary viewer, you're going like, oh my God, that is definitely a white guy. Uh, and on the other hand, you're, you're going, well, this is actually very nuanced and this is actually really interesting. And that this is more complicated than maybe we expect it to be for, again, 1932. Uh, another, <laughs> another film is the, the Mask of Fu Manchu. 
which have you seen the mask of Manchu? Um, yes, but it's been a long time. <laughs> which is, is complicated. Uh, very complicated. It does. It is. Yeah. Uh, it has, it stars Boris Karloff as, as Fu Manchu and Myrna Loy as his daughter, who is also into sadomasochism. Uh, it's very much, you know, it's, it's based on the Sax Romer books. It's very much the yellow peril kind of narrative. Uh, it's incredibly racist. It's like shockingly racist. It also, there's, there's a moment in the film, actually, because part of the story is that, is that Fu Manchu is, like, stealing back artifacts um, uh, from the British Museum. <laughs> and, is, and at one point actually says to some of the, you know, the dashing, the, uh, the dashing white hero, right? It was basically like, you stole this from my country. You stole this from me. You stole this from my people. So now I'm taking it back. And it's a really interesting moment. So I was like, you know what? Fair play. I think I agree with Fu Manchu here. <laughs> um, but again, so you got those those kinds of things where you have this very creepy representation of, of obviously, Chinese people uh, being played by white actors. So Myrna Loy. Uh, Boris Karloff, uh, and and still there there is a degree of nuance to it, and there is this degree of like you know reading against the grain almost, just like you know what I think the Fu Manchu has a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like so often in life we know that th- nothing is black and white. Well, very few things are. I'm not going to say nothing is, but uh, very few things are. There are a lot of of degrees of. Um, of looking at things. And when you go back to this period of film history, you can see that they understood that in the twenties, they understood that in the thirties, they just, those voices were silenced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they simply stopped being able to, to depict certain things. And, and I think, I think that it actually, it made film weaker. It made Hollywood production weaker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, imagine what Casablanca could have been like if they could have really uh, explored more of. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I I just I think about things like that sometimes. Like you could have just really had some even deeper um, conversations, either over or just visually, of. Um, different depictions of relationships and depictions of humanity and that was stifled and so much creativity was not allowed to happen because of this this decision of we're going to uh we're going to tell you what's acceptable and what isn't Mm -hmm. instead of letting people just make the decision to see movies or not based on their personal tastes and preferences so yeah yeah, and, and it has it has to be said, a lot of these films that we're talking about were very popular. These were not, it mm-hmm. wasn't like the public was going like, oh no, this is morally reprehensible, I shall not, I shall not view it. These were popular films. These were films that, yeah. you know, people went to. These were big stars, uh, and, and these were big directors. And so the, the kind of moral, uh, the closing off of the moral universe in Hollywood really was really wasn't necessary i i feel like that if hollywood had been able to hold out a little bit longer and had been like and had maybe not been so conservative itself um that essentially this this kind of thing would have actually died and the production code would have died and they they would have been like you know what 
to hell with it. You know, let's let's just continue to make the kinds of films that people actually do want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, the code isn't the reason that women's voices were silenced. No. That's one thing that I, I think we need to make clear. Because by 1930, um, it's pretty widely accepted that Dorothy Arzner for a while was the only woman that was directing movies um, at a certain point. First studios, um, uh, Lois Weber wasn't doing anything. Frances Marion was still writing films, but her com- her production company was shut down. Going into the 30s when the depression hit, and a lot of people lost their jobs because they had contracts with studios, and those contracts were canceled. A lot of those people that lost their contracts were women, um, and so it's it's. The timing is interesting, but it's not cause causational. I'm trying to think what the right word is there. Um, like women's voices weren't quieted because of the code. It just happened at the same time. But uh, but it's just interesting to think like would that have lasted as long if it wasn't for the fact that men were getting to have so much say in how. what voices were being heard and how they were being heard. Yeah, exactly. There's a consolidation of power that was happening. And and it was happening partially, as you're saying, partially because of economics and partially because of this kind of closing off of Hollywood as as a thing. And this is also eventually, you know, we're talking about the rise of what essentially is the rise of the studio system and Mm -hmm. and all of the things that are connected to that. So you've got all of these things kind of in a confluence that that this is growing out of. but I, I, I do think that the, the narrowing of the scope definitely meant that you couldn't make, you couldn't make the same kinds of films. And so you, there was a narrowing of focus as well. You couldn't make certain things anymore. And even if you could still make them, you could not make them in the same way. You couldn't represent them in the same way. There were certain adaptations. So something like Anna Christie. You can't really adapt to Anna Christie in, in postcode Hollywood because it wouldn't work. Like, you couldn't adapt that play, period. Uh, and so I, I do think that there is kind of that that narrowing of everything, that closing off and turning Hollywood into this very male-dominated uh, uh, world. Because part of, part of the moral issues that they were talking about was the representations of women and the representations of what women were and how women were um, and what is okay and what isn't in, in terms both of... Uh, the the activities that women are allowed to engage in and also in terms of sexuality gotta get rid of those women of ill repute (laughs) (laughs) yeah um so we did get a question from brendan at blc agnew what's your favorite pre-code film to shock unsuspecting friends with (laughs) uh freaks Really? Freaks. Yeah. Todd Browning's Freaks. And and that one I think I think surprises people because the vast majority of the characters are are people that you do not expect to be in a major Hollywood production to begin with. Um, but then also the fact that again, you've got a lot of disabled performers and um, uh, and the quote freaks who are uh, uh, being represented as far more complex and far more complicated than, uh, than we maybe, again, than we expect from that time period. And, uh, and it is, it is horrifying. I mean, the final sequence 
of that film is one of the most terrifying things you're going to see. And I, I don't care. Like, you, you're just like, oh, no, Wes Craven, just like, nah, fuck you, man. Todd Browning. Awesome. I feel like I don't really have anything shocking because I haven't seen... Honestly, I have not seen enough films from this period. I was pretty surprised, like, stuff that we've already talked about, I was pretty surprised by the way things were depicted in um, in The Wind, in The Big House, in Scarface, in some of those movies. I think, I think anybody who's really open to uh, seeing a different view of the world from what they thought they understood things to be based on the studio movie, like, the big... Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals or whatever. I think anything they watch from before 1934 has the the possibility of being shocking. Um, Yeah. Do you have some others? Uh, Yeah, I was actually trying to think about that. I I think that some of the comedies are actually really interesting. Like I say, Trouble in Paradise is quite surprising uh, in what it represents. Another one is... um, uh, design for Living, which is 1933, and is is essentially, I know that the description on Wikipedia is like, oh, this is like a platonic, you know, friendship. It's just like, no, 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 no. These, this, this is like a, a, a uh, um, this is a polyamorous relationship. Like this is, it's representative <laughs> of a polyamorous relationship. It's Miriam Hopkins, um, uh, Gary Cooper, and Friedrich March. And the two men are in love with her. And she's like, well, I can't really choose. So why don't all three of us get together? <laughs> wow, and that's I that's what see a this. lot of the film is about. is about three of them kind of working out there. And the men are friends. And now it's never really indicated that the two of them are sleeping together. But it's definitely indicated that, that they are both sleeping with the same woman. And that they're cool with this. And so that's what a lot of the film is dealing with. And the, when I first saw it, I was like, holy shit. Like, are you kidding me? Are we getting a polyamorous relationship in like the 1930s? Wow. Uh, and of course, you know. But it, people didn't think like that. <laughs> uh, there, are, there are a few films that are, that are like that where you're like, wait a minute. Is this, is this going where I think it's going? I think, I think that all three of them are just going to run off together. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's that, and then also uh, I mentioned Freaks Island of Lost Souls, which is a, an, an adaptation of Charles Lawton um, of uh, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And again, that's just sort of I, I love horror films from this period because they're really fucking creepy. And they mm-hmm. come up with some of the weirdest shit sometimes, you know, like, wow, guys, like, this is dark. Uh, one of my favorites is also The Black Cat with. Um, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is just so heavy. It's a heavily stylized film, but, I mean, it involves torture and rape and the destruction of homelands and, like, all sorts of interesting things. It's it's a really fascinating and, again, very creepy film. Yeah. I'm trying to think who it was the other day. Sorry, I'm jumping around, but... Uh, the other day, someone posted a thread. Was it? it might have been Fritzy from Movie Silently. Um, posted a thread of different versions of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, like the transition. <laughs> yeah. And the earliest ones were so creepy. I was just like, Oh my gosh, that's that's fucked up. <laughs> and it was great. 
Oh yeah, the early um, what the the Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde with uh, Friedrich March is fascinating. Um, that has some very distressing racial overtones as well. Uh, but it's it's a very it's a very good film. I, again, it's that that kind of nuance, uh, the that mm-hmm. ability to depict moral complexity um, that you get less and less of as as the studio system goes on. Yeah. Everything gets watered down and filtered, and oh, I, I I have so many movies that I want to watch, and I'm so excited to live in the world that we do, where we can go back and revisit some of these things, and it's fun to see it, um, to experience some of these things, knowing what I know, um, and and having some of that, like some of my preconceptions knocked down. I think that's that's probably one of the most interesting um, interesting things about watching these old films is like, oh, everything I thought I knew <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Did you, did you have any others? Or? Uh, I also just want to encourage people to watch Mae West films because they're not always good films per se and that the plots are very kind of typical and you sort of know where they're going and everything, which she's great. And, uh, and baby Cary Grant. <laughs> like... Oh. You just get you get Mae West being like, oh well, he's hot, and Cary Grant's like, hi, <laughs> <laughs> and he is hot, and he is hot. Maybe <laughs> Cary Grant is very hot. Even old Cary Grant was very hot. <laughs> All Cary Grant was very yes, hot. that's true. But you know, it's so so seldom that you actually get to see those movies where a woman is like, wow, he's mm-hmm. sexy, <laughs> like actually saying that out loud. Yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up on, I'm very much a child of the 80s. I grew up watching the Golden Girls, which it's so funny because I think back now, I'm like, when I was 10 years old, why did I watch a show about a bunch of old ladies? That's so funny. Like, <laughs> it's weird that I did. But um, but I just remember always thinking that Blanche was the most shocking character ever. And now I'm like, no, she was just a woman saying what she thought. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay now, but Yeah. That's basically Mae West. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So, all right. Well, I think that's going to wrap things up for this week. Um, we hope you've been enjoying this series. We decided that since we're in quarantine and there's not a lot of news coming out and not a lot of new stuff coming out, um, we just wanted to focus on old stuff. So, um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about different themes and topics week to week for the next who knows how long. Um, so if you have a particular genre or topic or something that you'd like us to take a closer look at, we're all ears. Um, we definitely have some other things that we'll be moving forward into, but we love, we love getting ideas from you all too. Um, we are still running our contest, I think for one more, like this is the last week. Yes, that sounds right. Um, uh, so you can win three months of the Criterion channel and make sure to send us your cinematic blind spots. We've gotten some really great entries. We've shared a few of ours, um, your most shocking blind spot. And that can be however you define that. Um, mine at the start of this was that I had never seen the Godfather part two. I have now seen the Godfather part two, but I still think that's pretty shocking. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what is your most shocking blind spot now? That's a great question. I was actually trying to think, like, um, 
because I mean, I think for me, it, it definitely is. Um, um, what's the word? It's definitely a subjective question, yeah. but also I think it's very different based on the person. Like for me, I am an assistant editor at an award site that primarily focuses on the Oscars. So for me, I think that some of my shocking blind spots are some of the best picture winners I haven't seen, mm-hmm. like The French Connection. Oh, wow. That's a good yeah. One. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I, in fact, I've seen parts of it, and I remember one time my mom was watching it, and I was like, eh, I'll watch this later because it had already started. And then I just never did. And there's so many of these that I just like, it's not that I'm avoiding them. I just haven't seen them. So, yeah, I think maybe The French Connection is probably my next one, maybe. Um, Yeah, so. Um, But, yeah, send us yours. We are not judging. We're just curious. And um, that's all you have to do. And you can DM us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, which we're at at Citizen Dame Pod uh, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. Um, so you can send us direct messages that way, or you can email us at, um, you can email us citizendamepod at gmail.com and just put in the subject line criterion contest or whatever. Um, whatever makes it easy to identify <laughs> that that's what you're emailing us about. Um, yeah. So, um, but we did want to give a quick shout out and thanks to our patrons who've been so lovely and amazing along the way. Um, Heather, Adriana, The Crooked Table Podcast, Michael, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much, you guys. Uh, to continue to support the show, you can uh, go to patreon.com slash citizendame. Of course, there's absolutely no obligation. Um, you get episodes early. Um, there are some other bonus content that we're we are still working on we do have a couple of things there but we're still working on more um and uh or you can go to our zazzle store zazzle.com slash citizen dame turns out they have face masks so we're gonna have citizen dame specific <laughs> face masks in the store this week you know you want that uh or you can also kick us a couple of dollars co-fi.com slash citizen dame and of course we know these are hard times for everyone so if this is something that's a hardship for you we don't like we're not thank you for just listening that's a big help too um and you can reach us individually lauren where are you at i am at lh business on twitter and instagram and i am at karen m peterson on twitter and instagram so, um, we love hearing from you. Reach out to us. Let us know what you're up to. And we will catch you later. Bye. Women don't. They basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution. Right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can, but for women, women it is just about security and commitment and whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew.